I'll ask you to turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. But before we go into God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, indeed, as we look back over the year, we cannot but give you thanks because we have seen your faithfulness enacted in ways beyond our wildest imagination. We have seen your goodness and faithfulness in unexpected ways. And we recognize that we do not deserve your goodness. And so we receive your kindness with gratitude. And as we look forward to the coming year, we thank you that knowing that you are the ancient of days, the one who has planned all things from beginning to end, the one who is even now working out his good, holy, and wise purposes, even in the midst of painful circumstances. We thank you that in the midst of the uncertainties of life, we can look to you and know that even though we may not know what the future holds, we can rest because we know the one who holds the future the one who is guiding it, the one who has pledged himself to us in covenant love. And so, Father, as we look to the future, we ask that you would give us, your people, grace so that the recognition of your faithfulness would not simply stir gratitude, but that gratitude for your grace would lead us to action, to recognize that you have saved us so that we may serve your purposes, so that we, Crestwick Baptist Church, may be a base camp for believers and a lighthouse for the lost. And so we ask, Father, give us wisdom, give us strength, so that we may fulfill your purposes for us in the coming year. Unite our hearts around your purposes so that we, your people, may minister the gospel in this community. Knowing that this is not something we could do of ourselves. It's something that we can only do by the strength, the grace that you provide. And so as we hear your word today, we ask that your spirit would move in our hearts, shape us, form us, convict us, Transform us, not for our sakes, but for the glory and honor of your matchless name, we pray. Amen. So Luke chapter 3, by God's grace, I appreciate Michael praying through some of the good things that God has done for us. And I think we recognize, by God's grace, we have survived yet another year with all of its ups and downs. And the Lord has faithfully provided for us and guided us through various challenges. And we are grateful to Him for His unfailing grace. 
Now we face another year of unknown difficulties and unexpected delights. The question still remains, what would be our confidence for the future? And Luke, in this text, points us once again to our Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2 have served as the overture to Luke's symphony of salvation. And now, in the opening movement, chapter 3, Luke describes the preparation for the ministry of Jesus. So let's read Luke chapter 3, verse 1, up to verse 20. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and were all questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Now you can see that Luke begins with the ministry of John. And this is about 18 years after the left-behind episode 
in Jerusalem. He tells us in chapter 3, verse 1, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And Luke here is connecting God's saving action with the history of the world. He is making the point that those wearing the crowns and holding the reins of power fool themselves into believing that they determine the course of history. But the narrative makes clear that God's plan is not controlled by the laws of kings, the machinations of politicians, or the solemn rituals of priests. History is directed by a transcendent power leading to an appointed time that is not in the appointment books of any of these rulers. It is a time only God controls. Jesus' followers have no temporal power. They have only the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the seeming weakness of God will bring down not only the earthly powers, but the cosmic powers that stand in opposition. And really, as we face another year, that is the basis of our hope. Our sovereign Lord is in control. Christ has triumphed, and He is continuing to work out His saving purposes in our day. Even when we do not understand what he is doing. And here in this passage, God's saving purposes are in full swing as God sends John out, in verse 3, to proclaim a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. God is bringing about his promised salvation and the radical transformation that Isaiah speaks about in verse 4, 5, and 6 that radical transformation of the world, Isaiah foretold, would begin in the hearts of the people. Paradoxically, though, this promise of salvation in verse 6, that all flesh will see the salvation of God, comes with the threat of judgment. Because you notice in verse 9, John says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. If you recall, Zechariah's father, uh, John, John's father, Zechariah, had prophesied that John would go before the Lord to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And so John gives an uncompromising challenge as he calls the people to a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's telling them that baptism is not merely an external rite. He is calling them to repentance that is expressed through baptism. They could not rest on any ethnic or religious background. That's why he tells them, don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children 
for Abraham. He was calling them to repent. It was the only way to escape judgment. And repentance isn't simply feeling sorry for the things you've done. Repentance is a gift from God that involves turning from sin to submit to God. John was calling on the people to acknowledge their sinfulness, their need for renewal. That's why he tells them in verse 8, to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That means that God required a transformation they could not accomplish on their own. Only God could bring this about. And we see that more clearly in verse 10 as the people ask John, so what should we do? What does repentance look like? And John gives concrete examples of the fruit of repentance in verse 11. He tells them that self-centeredness needed to be replaced by self-giving generosity. That's why John tells them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors would do their jobs with integrity instead of enriching themselves at the expense of the people. In verse 12 and 13, soldiers would not abuse their power because they are now content with their wages. See, repentance didn't mean that they had to leave their jobs. At the same time, repentance meant more than external behavioral modification. Something deeper needed to happen. They needed their hearts to be changed so that the way they did their jobs would be transformed. And so John's radical message of repentance had people wondering if he was the Messiah, according to verse 15. And John anticipates their thoughts by making clear that, no, I'm not the one who is to come. I am preparing the way for the one greater than myself. In verse 16 and 17, he says, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of the one to come. And that was the work of the lowliest slave in any house. He was orienting them towards the one to come because that's what repentance meant. He would, they would turn to the one who is to come. He was the one in whom they would trust. According to verse 16, he is the one who would baptize them with the Holy Spirit and fire. That meant that God, he would, this one to come would exercise God's power to purify and transform the people. And you wonder, if you're wondering why John keeps talking about the one to come, it is because Luke is heightening our anticipation by not naming this one who is to come. He's making us ask, who is this person? And he'll answer that in verse 21. But Luke is also foreshadowing the cost of proclaiming the good news faithfully. Because we are told in verse 19 and 20 that John is imprisoned by Herod for his uncompromising proclamation of the truth. 
for challenging Herod for all his evil deeds. But that imprisonment also serves as a transition point. With his imprisonment, John, as it were, steps off the stage and Luke turns the spotlight on Jesus in verse 21. He's made us wonder, who is this one to come? And then he answers it in verse 21, where it says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, and was praying, the heavens were opened. See, John's work of preparing the way of the Lord actually culminates in the baptism of Jesus. We know, we understand that Jesus had no need of repentance because he had no sin. But he was baptized because he was uniting himself to all those who had been baptized by John. To those who were repenting of their sins. This was part of Jesus preparing himself for ministry. He was signaling that he would act on behalf of those who were repenting of their sins. He was formally, formally identifying himself with the repentant of Israel through his baptism. And, why, and we are told that while he prays, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Luke is making it clear that this was not a private vision. This was a public proclamation of Jesus' identity. God is announcing to the whole world, this is my son. With him, I am well pleased. According to Thomas Schreiner, the opened heavens at Jesus' baptism signifies that God is about to speak in a powerful way. And we'll see that in the coming Sundays. The Spirit comes as a symbolic and visible way like a dove. This imagery represents the inauguration of a new creation just as the dove was released from Noah's ark upon the inauguration of the new world after the flood. Isaiah predicted that the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon the Messiah, and thus the coming of the Spirit signifies Jesus' anointing and empowering for ministry. The heavenly voice clearly comes from the Father, who identifies Jesus as His Son. This is a clear allusion to Psalm 2-7 in which the Messianic king is adopted as God's son when installed as king. So putting it all together, Jesus is the spirit-endowed son and servant, the king, the one uniquely related to God and as the servant, the one who atones for the sins of Israel. That was what God was signifying after the baptism of Jesus. When the heavens open, the, dove, the, the, the Spirit descends on Christ and the voice announces, You are my Son. With you I am well pleased. And then Luke continues to describe the identity of Jesus by giving us the genealogy of Jesus in verse 
38. Now you're familiar with Matthew's genealogy. That was meant to establish Jesus' rightful claim to the throne of David. Luke's genealogy has a different intention. Luke is wanting to connect Jesus to all humanity. And that's why the genealogy ends in verse 38 with the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke is presenting Jesus as the son of God incarnate, who is also the second Adam. So that we are presented with Jesus, the true God and true man. Then comes the fun part, chapter 4, verse 1. As the second Adam, Jesus is led in, by the Spirit into the wilderness. This is part of his preparation for ministry. And he will prepare for ministry by being tempted by Satan. He spends 40 days in the wilderness to recall the testing of Israel in the wilderness. So that Jesus has been portrayed as the Son of God, incarnate. He's also being portrayed in chapter 4 as the embodiment of Israel and the second Adam as he enters into testing. And as we reflect on his testing, we need to take Sinclair Ferguson's comment very seriously. It has been commonplace to interpret Jesus' temptations as analogous to almost a model for the tempting of the Christian. Christ was tempted as we are, but resisted, therefore we should resist in similar ways. But this leads to a partial and negative interpretation of his experiences. Don't miss this. His temptations constitute an epochal event. They're not merely personal, but cosmic. They constitute the tempting of the last Adam. In the power of the Spirit, Jesus advanced as the divine warrior, the God of battles who fights on behalf of his people and for their salvation. His triumph demonstrated that the kingdom of God is near and that the messianic conflict had begun. So Jesus isn't being presented in Luke 4 as an example for us to follow. Luke is presenting Jesus as the divine warrior battling Satan on our behalf. In the same way that Adam was tempted, Jesus is tempted. But there is a significant difference. Adam was tempted in the Garden of Eden. He was surrounded by fruit that God had provided for him. But Adam fell and brought sin's curse upon us and the entire creation. And so Jesus is tempted not in a garden, but in a barren wilderness. And to make matters worse, Jesus had not eaten for 40 days, we are told. And so Satan attacks him at his point of need. He tempts Jesus to address his hunger by his own strength. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. Satan comes to him and says, Well, if you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. I mean, it's easy. Jesus was being tempted to take matters into his own hands. 
to satisfy his legitimate need for food without relying on God. And so Jesus cites Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. He is affirming that true life comes from trusting in the Lord instead of relying on oneself to meet one's needs. So essentially, Jesus is saying to Satan, I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. I will wait on the Lord to provide food for me. So strike one. Satan then shows the kingdoms of the world to Jesus. He offers them their glories in verse 6. Imagine what he is being offered. The promise of absolute earthly power. The wealth and power of the Roman Empire and more would be given to Jesus. All he needed was to worship Satan. And he will fulfill his destiny without any difficulty. And he wouldn't have to wait. All he needed was to worship Satan. But Jesus responds from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Unlike Israel, Jesus refused to fall into idolatry. He would be faithful to God and God alone, no matter what Satan offered him. Strike two. And so Satan tempts Jesus a third time. He takes him to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. And he challenges Jesus to test the faithfulness of God by throwing himself down. And you see here that Satan even uses scripture. He says, well, I mean, it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Don't you want to see that happen? I mean, wouldn't that be cool, Jesus? But Jesus sees the trap. He is being tempted to test God. And he cites Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. He says, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, to test God basically means that one fails to acknowledge his power or to take seriously his will to save. To test God is to impugn God's power and faithfulness to fulfill the covenant promises. Jesus knows that God's power and love do not have to be proven at every turn. See, faith means taking God at His word because we rely on His character. We don't have to prove it every single day. We know God is faithful. And so Jesus demonstrates his confidence in God by refusing to test God's promise of protection. He knows God will protect him and is protecting him. He doesn't have to put himself in danger deliberately. You will notice that at every turn, 
Jesus invokes God's word from Deuteronomy 6 to 8. In so doing, he is confronting Satan with the word of God. And by doing so, he is confronting Satan with God, who is his ultimate adversary. Jesus isn't fighting on his own resources. And that's why Jesus prevailed where Israel had failed and triumphed where Adam had fallen. He continued to trust in the Lord. He did not waver in his allegiance to God. And so he emerged from the temptation as the tested and tried son who had proven his faithfulness to his father. Emerging triumphant where both Adam and Israel had miserably failed. And so we are told, chapter 4, verse 14, that the devil slinks away until an opportune time. Luke is telling us that this confrontation was simply the opening salvo, the opening battle, as the kingdom of God invades this fallen world. The decisive battle would be fought on the cross. But this battle in the wilderness foreshadows the outcome of that climactic battle. Just as Jesus triumphed in the wilderness, so Jesus would triumph on the cross. Not by imposing his will, but by submitting himself to the will of his Father. Because by his obedience to death, Jesus, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God and thus purified our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. By his sacrificial death, Jesus defeated Satan once and for all. Just as Jesus defeated Satan in the wilderness by submitting to his Father, the victory over evil was not won through overwhelming force, but through loving self-sacrifice and surrender. And that's not the end of the story, is it? In his rising again, Jesus brings in the new creation. Jesus was tempted in a fallen world. He rises again to bring in a new world. And through faith in him, we become part of that new creation. We are given new hearts indwelt by his spirit. And His Spirit is even now at work in us, transforming us to reflect the character of Jesus so that we can follow the example of Jesus because Jesus has won the victory for us. What this text is telling us is that our Savior has triumphed and He has our back. In time, he will return to consummate his victory. And as we live in the already not yet awaiting the consummation of Jesus' victory, 
we have the comfort of knowing that we have one who is our great high priest interceding for us before the Father. And that's why we can face the future with confidence. It's not about our puny capabilities. It's all about Jesus and his redemptive accomplishment. Jesus is our great high priest who understands our struggle to be faithful because he has been tempted as we are yet without sin. In fact, he has endured the most extreme temptation Satan could muster and he has emerged triumphant. And through faith in him, We are united to Christ, so we share in that victory. And in the here and now, Jesus, our triumphant high priest, invites us to draw near to his throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And please understand, when the author of Hebrews speaks to our time of need, he talks about our constant need. (laughs) The wonderful truth about our Lord Jesus Christ is that he doesn't merely help us get by. Our Lord Jesus Christ has triumphed and he is leading us home to glory. So as we face this coming year, with all of its unknown challenges and unforeseen hazards, let us entrust ourselves to him who is the lover of our souls, to the faithful, tested, true son who has overcome on our behalf. Let us pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that Jesus isn't just an example. He is our Savior. That he is the one who has taken our sins and paid for them on the cross. And that he, by his life of obedience and faithfulness, he is our righteousness. And through faith in him, we are united to him so that all that is his is ours. And that means that when you look at us, your people, you see not our sin and wretchedness. You see your son who pleased you fully so that we who are your adopted children have no fear of being rejected or being cast off. We have every confidence that we are accepted because of Jesus Christ. And that all that is His is ours. So that you are constantly at work in us leading us, guiding us, shaping us to be more like him.
Oh Lord, may this reality give us confidence to face the future. And I pray for those who are here who do not know you, who are strangers to your grace. Lord, our hearts are grieved because all that Christ has accomplished means nothing to them. Until they are in Christ. And so we would ask that you would be gracious to them, that you would turn them to Christ, that they might know the joy of knowing Christ, of being in Him, and enjoying all that is in Him. Will you not be gracious, Father? We ask this for the glory and honor of your matchless name in Christ. Amen.